I think many people don't really truly appreciate the details of uh, really the information systems necessary for helping manage supply chains, the uh, data analytics that have been used. Have you ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind? I have, yeah. About, Russell yeah. Crowe. Yes, exactly. So it's actually about John Nash. And he came up with the, uh, the whole concept of exactly what you described, that you have all these entities that are trying to maximize their respective utility, but for an entire system to be successful, sometimes you have to have little trade-offs hmm. that occur within subsets of those systems. And supply chains are systems. These days, supply chain experts like George Sedition are seeing new interest from the general public in their work. And he was happy to give us a crash course on the subject. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. There's a good chance that up until March, you took the supply chain for granted. This was America, the land of bounty. There would always be a chicken for every pot and 85 different kinds of toilet paper. As long as you had the money to buy them, they could be yours. Well, then came the pandemic, and suddenly we all understood that money isn't everything. You can't buy toilet paper if no one has toilet paper to sell, much less personal protective gear or even hand sanitizer. The supply chain had let us down. Now, it's George Sedition's job to keep that from happening any more than absolutely necessary. He is a professor of supply chain risk and resilience and director of the Supply Chain Risk and Resilience Research Institute at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And he joins us today. So, George, welcome. Sarah, thank you very much for having me here today. So, George, you've devoted your career to the supply chain. Is it gratifying to see the rest of us finally understanding its importance? Oh, it's been a gratifying process the entire time, whether or not it's been appreciated, because in the end, it's the supply chain and all the different companies that provide the products and services that we all need for our everyday lives. And just the fact of being part of that, doing research and supply chain management, working with companies, uh, publishing articles that provides new insights into how to better manage these supply chains. That's been uh, fulfilling enough, but now with the greater emphasis, today people actually saying the word supply chain or supply chain management, it's like uh, putting the gravy on the turkey tomorrow. <laughs> You're a lucky guy. I can tell you feel it, and <laughs> this makes it, this a perfect pre-Thanksgiving segment here. Um, I'm curious, though, uh, what first got you interested in the field of, of supply chain? Oh, Sarah, great question. So, uh, when I was younger, in uh, high school and beginning my undergraduate, I was pretty much a long-haired hippie, musician, uh, pianist, <laughs> and I thought I'd be a rock star as I uh, moved on to my career. And then it came to the uh, realization that that's a pretty darn hard field to really to get into and become at the top level. A lot so, of people uh, want to do I, that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And one I still enjoy it today but uh, not quite uh, at that capacity. But uh, when I was uh, in my second year of undergraduate, I um, enlisted in the reserves, the U.S. Army Reserves, then went through ROTC, 
I ended up having a bachelor's degree in political science. Hmm. But then I thought when I had the opportunity to go on active duty, uh, they and back in those days, they would give you a list of the different branches or specialties that you could request. And I put in armor as first, which is tanks. And then the second one I put in as quartermaster or to become the supply officer. Hmm. Uh, my father served in the Korean conflict in armor. And so I kind of had that a little bit in my mindset. And I was happy I did have those first two years of experience in armor. But then I thought about the rest of my life. And what is a career path that makes sense? One that I know there's always going to be a demand for. And that's when I thought about quartermaster, or well, at least the Army calls it quartermaster. It's mm-hmm. logistics. And so that's when I, uh, the Army, uh, in its infinite wisdom, decided to uh, branch me armor and then logistics. And that's how my... Uh, career started. Hmm. Is that pretty common that you find people in uh, the supply chain field who come out of that military background or have been quartermasters? Uh, well, with all the branches of the military, of you know, Air Force, uh, Navy, uh, there's some. Uh, currently, our uh, interim uh, dean, uh, he served in the uh, Navy, uh, did more on the analytics Aside, but he's been a supply chain professor for, oh, Keith, I hope you don't mind saying this publicly, for 50 years now. Oh, wow. So uh, he's had quite, uh, you know, quite a uh, phenomenal career uh, that way. But uh, I would say, actually, Sarah, a little bit differently, a lot of people walk into it by accident, Hmm. or at least in the past, where people might work as an engineer for three, four, five years and then shift over toward the business side, and then start working in logistics. Uh, myself, I took the military path. I saw, you know, opportunities in logistics, and we didn't call it logistics. I'm sorry, we didn't call it supply chain management back in the early 90s, uh, or not as frequently, but definitely on the logistics. So I saw that uh, opportunity. Uh, but in the end, there's really such a demand for it, and it's only the last maybe 15 years that universities have really started picking up and creating more supply chain management programs hmm. in the United States to be able to fulfill this demand. But there's still a huge demand for the field, both you know from the university-trained uh, individuals as well as those you know, working are the day-to-day type jobs. Okay. So I'm curious about some of the the day-to-day work that goes into this. What would you say is a common misconception about how the supply chain works? Oh, that it's all uh, trucks, trains, and airplanes. Uh, Those are absolutely critical parts of connecting organizations for the flow of uh, materials. Mm -hmm. But I think many people don't really truly appreciate the details of uh, really the information systems necessary for helping manage supply chains, the uh, data analytics that have been used, especially in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, We've seen a huge, huge growth in it with firms such as uh, Amazon, for example. And before that, we saw that with uh, Walmart, Mm -hmm. with uh, cross-stocking. So I think the part that people don't truly understand is that as a business function, but it really touches upon all the other business functions in the company, and that you really have to have organizations coordinate and work together, which is a challenge at times because, you know, many firms kind of want to do it their own way or have their own respective 
uh, hierarchies that they're responsible for, but now you have to work with other organizations. And to be truly successful in some of those circumstances, you have to work very closely with those organizations and strategic activities, such as new product development, for example, or trying to uh, drive uh, cost uh, management strategies among multiple uh, organizations in the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So I would say the misconception is that it's there's a lot more behind the scenes than what people would normally just see, such as seeing that empty uh, shelf on the uh, store not having the toilet paper. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it's so complex, and there's so many different players who have to work together to make this happen. At the same time that they're all maybe just guided by this profit motive, it almost feels like Adam Smith's invisible hand is, like, writ large <laughs> in the toilet paper aisle. <laughs> Do you think that's a misconception? Oh, my. You know, I, I like that you brought this up, uh, Sarah. So I always think about it in a slightly different way, but in the parallel. Uh, have you ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind? I have, yeah. About, Russell yeah. Crowe. So yes, exactly. So it's actually about John Nash. And he came up with the, uh, the whole concept of exactly what you described, that you have all these entities that are trying to maximize their respective utility, but for an entire system to be successful, sometimes you have to have a little trade-off. Hmm. that occur within subsets of those systems. And supply chains are systems uh, themselves. So I think you hit right on the head, Sarah. You know, I think that's one of the rubs or challenges we have in supply chain is that we think from an individual company perspective, we always want to find ways of maximizing long-term shareholder wealth. Mm -hmm. But then there are times where you actually have to now work with other companies who have that same respective objective, and then it's just finding a way of creating that goal congruency. Hmm. And the way we do this, Sarah, is focusing on the final consumer. You, myself, everyone out there who has a dollar, has a euro, that they spend on a respective product or service. If you think about it, that dollar is really being divided up in a whole bunch of ways. Mm -hmm. you know, first, of course, uh, Uncle Sam will get its uh, cut. But then from there, it's really split up among all the different organizations that work toward uh, making their contributions for that product, that new car that you want to buy, the computer, the toilet paper, the uh, soup on the shelves. It has to be uh, eventually coordinated. So it's yeah, it, it's it's a complex area, even though it might look relatively simple. Yeah, no, it, it seems infinitely complex if you actually stop and think about it. And I think this toilet paper example, this really hit it home for so many of us. Um, let's talk about this problem here. You know, we go into the grocery stores, we see there is no toilet paper. Um, what has to be considered to solve that problem from a supply chain perspective? Oh, my goodness. So it goes multiple uh, levels. The first thing you want to do is to try to actually prevent those stockouts mm -hmm. or those disruptions occurring in the first place in the supply chain, and that these disruptions are not always necessarily intuitive. Mm -hmm. But we think about the, uh, the tragedies that we're suffering through with COVID-19, but you would think, though, that shouldn't necessarily affect the overall supply of toilet paper. Right. It's not what like people technically needed more of this product. Uh, exactly. 
And so, uh, in the end, there's this tendency that we have. Uh, I've lived in other parts of the country where we would have, we would know about hurricanes, for example, that were coming, and people two, three, four days beforehand, they will start to uh, stock up on the bottled water, uh, stock up on the toilet paper. Always my personal favorite is the uh, Pop-Tarts and the Twinkies, where those <laughs> things will last forever. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think we saw this uh, a very similar phenomenon occur, that now all of a sudden people are going to be holed up uh, for a period of time. And so you start seeing a lot of, uh, like, the toilet paper. And so what occurs is what's called this uh, bull-up effect. So you have this huge demand spike that occurs, uh, sometimes artificially created. Here it was created by a uh, perceived uh, disruption. Mm-hmm. And so now companies are used to producing. Every company has certain capacity constraints. How much they could produce at any one respective period of time. You know, there's a, And then this was, I think, amplified in many other industries because now... You know, people were concerned, and rightly so, about their health. Mm -hmm. So many people for a period of time were not able to go into the uh, workplaces to be able to be involved in the production processes. You know, jobs like yours and mine, I've been living in the land of Zoom for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, The listeners do not know it, but we're actually not meeting face-to-face right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's we've been able to change our processes, and what I've been finding, actually, I've been... very impressed. I will do nothing but give the highest praise for those supply chain professionals out there today. Hmm. I really thought what occurred with COVID-19 when it was first happening in March would be much more devastating from a supply chain perspective than it was. If you think about it, yeah, we were missing on the toilet paper, paper towels. We had the shortage of pork for a period of time. I don't know if you remember Mm -hmm. that. And then there's been uh, periods of some items here and there that have not been available. But for the most part, firms, I think, have been pretty darn good in adjusting their processes, adjusting their supply chains, and reconfiguring their supply chains. I will tell you, I have never ordered so much online in my life before COVID-19 hit. And so many ways, this is, I think... uh, it's been the catalyst for actually advancing our supply chains, and specifically those what's called the last mile supply chain to the very final delivery. So we, you know, we have the challenges. I think companies have done a good job, but it's hard. Of all of a sudden, everyone buys everything up, like the toilet paper, and now you have fewer employees are able to go into the uh, workforce. You know, they're not going. And on top of it. Toilet paper is an item that is a relatively stable demand type of item. Mm-hmm. So there's some products, uh, I always love this term, it's called volume demand heterogeneity. And that's just a fancy term of saying, you know, sometimes you got a lot of demand, sometimes you have a little bit of demand. So uh, the production processes and the supply chains were oriented to really focusing on efficiency and not having too much inventory available. And then all of a sudden we lost, you know, I, People hoarded it. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame them. You know, people have to take care of their own respective lives. So I still have the sneaking suspicion that there's a decent amount of toilet paper and a very, 
many of the different homes here in St. Louis. And you may actually <laughs> uh, be glimpsing into my personal pantry. I blame my husband. Some people got worried <laughs> about that, and they will not recover. <laughs> and I'm I'm talking today to George Sedition. He's a professor of supply chain risk and resilience. He's also the director of the Supply Chain Risk and Resilience Research Institute at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And he's actually willing to take your questions here. If you have something that you're wondering about the supply chain or a question for him about something you witnessed maybe in this pandemic that that may play into this, uh, we want to invite you to join us. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. We'll return to our conversation about the supply chain in just a moment. First, here's a local news update. The number of new coronavirus cases in the St. Louis region is slightly lower this week than last. Still, it's up by about 19 percent compared to two weeks ago. The region is seeing about 2,200 new diagnoses per day. St. Charles County is joining Missouri's two biggest counties in putting limits on bars and restaurants. Starting tonight, they must close at 11. St. Charles County Executive Steve Ellman supports the order. The St. Louis County Department of Public Health has sent letters to dozens of restaurants and bars ordering them to comply with the county's indoor dining ban. The county council also passed a resolution yesterday urging Governor Mike Parson to mandate masks statewide. Parson has resisted calls from local governments and medical professionals to implement a mask mandate. Join St. Louis Public Radio this afternoon for local and regional news and throughout the day on our website. That's stlpublicradio.org. And now back to our conversation. My guest today is George Sedition. He's the director of the Supply Chain Risk and Resilience Research Institute at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. He's also a professor of supply chain risk and resilience. And George, we do have a number of people who have questions for you here today. I was right. The supply chain is very buzzy right now. We're all thinking about it these days. 
We did get one question I want to go to first, though, that came in through Twitter. And this comes from Lucas. He writes, lumber and appliances were big issues in the same way that toilet paper was this year. Lumber prices spiked and major appliances are still backordered for months. I'd be interested to hear more about these. And, and Lucas adds, there's always some seasonality to it. And I guess that's part of my broader supply chain question about lumber. How much of the price slash supply variation is related to COVID-19, seasons and or weather, or poor market predictions? George, do you have any sense of, of how lumber has played out in this pandemic? What a phenomenal question. We've got First, some smart listeners. Much, <laughs> oh, sure do. Oh, that was a winner right off the bat. So this is one of those that was not intuitive to me until I spoke with a bunch of supply chain professionals. And it really goes down the line with regard to building products and building materials. I don't know if you've noticed, but in uh, St. Louis here, uh, it's actually more difficult now to buy a house. It's, I don't want to say there's a housing shortage per se, yeah. but there's actually fewer people want to sell their homes. And several good colleagues of mine who are in the uh, construction uh, industry or developers, they've actually seen a huge boon in their overall business with so many more uh, homes now that are being built. Hmm. And that's an industry where they're actually able to uh, still work uh, for the most part because they're outdoors. You know, they're able to uh, do the respective jobs. So we've actually seen a huge increase on the housing to include an increase in new housing, especially some people feel more comfortable due to COVID-19, actually just wanting to buy a new house. Those are, you know, fortunate enough that could uh, afford that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's had a trickle-down effect with regard to a lot of building materials, as Lucas had mentioned, with regard to the lumber, with regard to the appliances, because you need to be able to put the appliances, but also other types of uh, building materials. And given the overall quantity demand, quantity supplied, when there's greater uh, demand compared in relationship to the supply that's available, well, usually the uh, prices are going to increase. Mm -hmm. So that is where I'm uh, suspecting that we've seen some of those uh, significant price increases for those types of items, the appliances. Uh, and even before that, specifically with the appliances, the big issue we had before COVID-19 hit, COVID hit was dealing with the tariffs and the issues that we were having with China, and then the tariffs increasing the prices of uh, materials, either up to 10% or 25%. Hmm. So we started seeing some of those initial issues that were occurring about a year ago as well. But that, that's, that's my uh, idea of where I think uh, some of those are sh significant increases in prices and the shortages have come from. And this actually leads right into um, a caller here. I want to go to the phone lines. Lucy is calling from Rolla. Um, Lucy, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Hello. Hi, what, what's your question for George? My question, George, is um, when we're, you know, a lot, there's a, a lot of myths about, uh, you know, where these supplies are coming from and uh, I'm wondering what percentage of these um, necessity supplies are are being manufactured here in the U.S. compared to how many of them were, were relying on overseas or uh, Asia. Boy, that's a great question, Lucy. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Lucy. Yeah, and so I think we've seen actually a, it's not just over the last six, seven, eight months, 
but a gradual trend over the last maybe five to seven years to focusing a little bit more toward nearshoring, uh, where for so many years, once China opened up in the early 1990s, there seemed to be such a huge flock of companies going there for the components, contract manufacturing. Uh, But then we also start to realize how vulnerable some of our supply chains can be Hmm. and that the further you extend those supply chains, more stuff basically can go wrong. And then we saw with the most recent administration a little bit more of the focus or orientation for wanting having more uh, production occurring here in the United States or within, you know, the closer region uh, to us. So to me, I think I've really seen this, and I've seen numerous research papers on this as well, with a greater focus on the uh, reshoring or the nearshoring. But Lucy's bringing up a very good point, and actually something that we are investigating as part of the Supply Chain Risk and Resilience Research Institute. You know, we're working with companies to try to understand how can firms become more resilient to those potential problems hmm. that can occur in the supply chain itself. So uh, with regard to a respective exact percentage, there's just so, so many uh, materials, so many components. There's so many uh, final end items are produced either in China or produced in the United States. I cannot give a specific uh, percentage off the top of my head, sure. but I think we've seen a trend toward more of the uh, nearshoring Partly, uh, also, we've seen in a lot of the uh, traditional low-cost country uh, locations, their wages have actually been rising over the last several years, which makes them a little bit less attractive. Hmm. Uh, so you try to say you end up having more logistics costs, but you're saving on the labor uh, costs, and that balance is not. I think it's being slightly changed hmm. nowadays. Well, that would be certainly good news if we could bring back more of those jobs here to the U.S. Uh, Let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, We have another call, actually, from Rala. Garrett is calling from Rala. Uh, Garrett, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Hey. um, I I work in beer sales, and I'm wondering if the uh, the guests could comment on uh, the aluminum shortage. Uh, A lot of our suppliers are having issues with aluminum cans, and I'm wondering if he sees any companies securing their supply chain further on down the line beyond just the the products they create uh, to stabilize their supply. Garrett, that's a great question. I actually didn't know we were having an aluminum can shortage, something else to worry about. Uh, George, any thoughts on that? Oh, goodness. (laughs) Thank you for that question. I will always remember, I always think about different strategies that firms can utilize when they perceive a potential shortage that's coming on where they think there is or a significant potential price uh, increase that can occur. And I've actually heard of a couple of companies that actually would secure their supply and kind of go and fly in the face of lean. You know, in lean, we try to reduce the amount of waste, the amount of inventory. But there's some firms, uh, like, for example, when I used to live in Virginia, uh, Altria, most people know it as Philip Morris, Mm -hmm. uh, they would actually store over a year of the uh, chopped tobacco and their um, facilities. Uh, So they never had to worry about uh, running out of the items. But for most firms, this is not a uh, feasible strategy Mm -hmm. itself. So he's absolutely right. There's been the challenges with aluminum, but also with other metals. And in part, I think it's some of the uh, 
rise of some of the housing issues that are occurring, uh, but also greater demand for some of the uh, products uh, themselves. So, and this, as you mentioned, it's really a commodity uh, itself. So it's really hard to distinguish your firm from another one and trying to source uh, those items. Uh, things I always think about trying to do, and it might not be feasible being a uh, distributor, but things like a substitution strategy. Can we find other ways of containing uh, the beer that's still going to be inexpensive uh, for uh, the consumer themselves and as well as reducing the logistics costs? So I always think the big advantage of the aluminum uh, itself is it's a heck of a lot lighter than the glass, for mm-hmm. example. So that's going to drive down your logistics uh, cost because now you have lighter uh, quantities that you are shipping. And it doesn't make a difference for one or two, but when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of uh, cans of beer, it starts to add up mm-hmm. uh, pretty quickly. Uh, so this... Uh, so darn hard to try to predict this in a year, two years, three years, that this is going to be a, a continued uh, shortage. But I think it also uh, gets to the point of really analyzing the entire supply chain. So my, I would want to start investigating, are there going to be companies that are going to start to actually extract these metals more in the, from the United States, or are we going to continue to source them? Somebody who uh, steps my, up to fill that void. It is, but it's so difficult to do at the same time because it's a very capital-intensive industry, and you have to have a lot of money, uh, and then you have to have the land, the locations to be able to start that. So it's something that has to be thought about from a long-term perspective. So unfortunately, uh, I don't have any near-term solutions I could uh, suggest other than you know, know who the service provider is, the one that the service center that's producing the aluminum, keeping your eyes open and your options open. And if there's times where it might make sense to actually do what's called a forward buy and you have the capacity, there might be times it might make sense to have three, four months of uh, of a forward purchase to meet those anticipated needs. Because for his industry, I do not see any time soon people are going to stop drinking beer. (laughs) I'm sure you're right about that. Garrett, we want to wish you the best of luck in that quest. Boy, that that sounds like a thorny problem. We have time for just one more call here. I want to go to Susie, who's calling from Rock Hill. Um, Susie, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi. This is really an interesting show. Thank you. Hi. I'm I'm enjoying this, too. I'm I'm learning so much from George here. Lots of information. I'm I'm dying of curiosity to know if there are some things that aren't going to come back. Mm. They're just going. They're so you know lean right now because we can't reach them because of COVID or whatever. Is anything going to disappear? That's a great question. Thank you, Susie. Uh, George. Uh, you know what? I mean, it's sad to say this, but I remember the tragedy uh, of September 11th mm. and how that has altered our process of travel. Even today, I remember back in the late 90s, last moment, rushing onto an airplane, just going right through, zipping through, no problems. Nowadays, it's not happening. And I think what's occurred here with COVID-19 is going to change some of our respective processes, the way that we do business. So things going away, per se, it's very difficult for me to be able to pinpoint, but I think it's going to change the way that we work. Hmm. Uh, so I think uh, so many people have now, since March, have been working from home, for example. Uh, and I think there's going to be really more of that orientation moving forward. Uh, so if there's something that's going to start uh, to lose out on, 
all things, I think it's going to be office space. Hmm. I think we're going to have less demand for that because I think we're going to have more opportunities for people being able to still be effective, but being able to work from home and occasionally having to go into a respective office. Hmm. My concern with this deals with the eventually relationships. To me, supply chain management, a critical part of it is the relationships that are formed between the buyers and the suppliers and all throughout the supply chain. To have a relationship formed, it's pretty hard to do without that nose-to-nose, toes-to-toes, personal interactions. In the end, businesses consist of people. And it's the people that will form the relationships with other people in other countries, I'm sorry, in other companies Mm -hmm. themselves. So with regards to the products themselves, I don't see that happening quite as much. But I could see as we move forward, you know, changing to some extent the way that we actually do business and the way that we actually work. And I think we're having more work from home going in the future. And in some ways, some firms have actually experienced some uh, uh, minor benefits from this as well. If you don't have to have as much overhead with the office space, for example, but I think it will also increase our requirements and our need for information security hmm. and ensuring and fighting the uh, cyber attacks that we've been under attack ever uh, affected by ever since the internet came on board. That's a so, that's a great point. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't even think about that in terms of working from home. But you know, it also ties into the lumber question. If people have to work from home, they may want bigger houses. There may not be as much of a market for the sort of janitors who clean offices. There's all sorts of of impacts yeah. that can come from this, and that's why your line of work is so interesting, George. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, the other day, I was watching uh, TV with my uh, two of my sons, and we remarked about all of the commercials that you never had seen before with all these home office products hmm. and, you know, with the comfortable chairs and the rollers for, for the, uh, the glass for the uh, ground. So you can actually roll your chair. So in some ways you can see some uh, product lines might be eventually going down, but I think it's also anytime there's a challenge, I think very often there's also opportunities that exist as well. Well, and that's actually the perfect note to end on. Um, George Sedition, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and letting us all pick your brain. Oh, Sarah, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, be, uh, I'm easy to find if someone wants to send me an email. I want to give a quick note that we actually have a phenomenal uh, educational offering at UMSL at the bachelor's level, as well as a brand new supply chain and analytics master's program. So it really could help uh, people who want to really become involved in this field and work in this field really helps to distinguish them so they can have successful uh, careers. All right. Well, thank you so much for that plug. And and thank you again for joining us today. George is the director of the Supply Chain Risk and Resilience Research Institute at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.